1: The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, you joining me for The Bigger Picture this week with my guest, Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, as ever, uh, you can me lots of um, reading material to go through. Um, We're going to begin, I think, aren't we, with, with the tensions in Central and Eastern Europe, which looked rather
0: disquieting. Um, So where do we begin? Well, I think we've just got to briefly map what's going on. Uh, Really, for the last 20 years, Putin has been close to uh, Lukashenko in Bielorussia. Um, They've been having conversation for many years about whether they should have a new federal or, or, or structure between their two countries, or indeed, create some sort of unitary state. Um, Lukashenko is often referred to as a tyrant. Other people more accurately describe him as as the last sort of Stalinist uh, in Europe, last Stalin-style leader. He's, he's quite a brutal man. Um, and there are obviously mounting tensions on the Belarusian uh, and Polish border. It appears that Lukashenko and, and Putin have brought in uh, lots of uh, would-be refugees uh, from various war-torn Parts of the Middle East and elsewhere, um, and they've amassed. They've been amassed. They've been encouraged to mass on the Polish border. There are also tensions on the border, uh, less reported, but with Estonia uh, and Latvia, and, and most recently with um uh, with Lithuania. Um, the reports yesterday that lots of new barbed wire is being put out across the Estonian border, and also there are mounting tensions on the border between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Putet- there's mass ranks of tanks and soldiers uh, mounting on that border, and uh, some people think it's an exercise, other people think that it may be uh, the first step of a, of a kind of land grab um, by Moscow to try and get more of eastern Ukraine, which they believe is naturally part of, of the Russian sphere of influence. Um, uh, today, the British Ministry of Defence, the Ministry of Defence, Ben Wallace has announced that Britain will be cooperating more readily with the Ukrainians, selling them more naval equipment, perhaps more tanks uh, and, and weapons in the future. So, you know, there is this there is this tension. And then overlaying all of that, um, there are lots of people uh, in Central Europe, particularly in countries like uh, Hungary and Slovakia, who are somewhat beholden to Russia for their gas supplies. Um, and we're still waiting for the decision from germany as to whether this new russian pipeline this gas pipeline which will straddle uh the baltic um a, a potentially going into into germany uh Nord Stream two will continue the british of course and nato put pressure on the germans not to accept this british not just for geopolitical and strategic decisions but also because they want to wean germany off um the sort of the 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 traditional hydrocarbon approach to energy because the concern they have about global warming Mm -hmm. um but these are you know this is a a febrile and complex um situation and one of the problems of course is uh the traditional russian penchant for hybrid warfare and the, the russians are great chess players so if they move um uh, you know, in, in a timed and orchestrated way. If they move migrants to one border, uh, trying to put pressure on another state to open up a pipeline, that could all be some kind of deception, and then they roll into parts of Ukraine, or vice versa. So I think there's a lot of tension right across there, a lot of concern.
1: And closer to home as well. There are a couple of
0: um, Russian
1: bombers that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons, buzzing British airspace this week, and indeed the Russians actually... Um, uh, used an anti-satellite missile to blow up a, a satellite in, in space, causing the astronauts on the International Space Station have to take cover in case um, the space station was damaged and they had to return to, to Earth. It's all incredibly uh, disquieting, isn't it? Um, to what extent do you think the, the change of President of the United States has emboldened Putin's
0: hand? Well, it could be partly that. Um, and and Afghanistan as well, the withdrawal. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Joe Biden has had the approach that he has. Uh, he seems to, you know, Biden isn't doing well in the polls in America. Um, it could be that after the midterms uh, next year that he's a bit of a lame duck president. And, of course, in a world of, of, of competing states, mm-hmm. our world competitors and adversaries, be they Russian, Chinese or otherwise, uh, uh, try to exploit that. So, yes, it is very, very difficult. Um um, and you're right also to point out, you know, the issues of satellites. The Chinese have been um, militarising space for some time, the Americans have poured money into this area, and the Russians have done what they've done also. Um, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, you'd watch, I know, some whizzy James Bond films, and they'd talk about, yes. you know, satellites and all the rest of it, and they'd be, yeah. I know, in, in, in earlier forms of science fiction, there'd be all kinds of whizzy lasers flying around space, but actually... Here we are now fairly deep into the 21st century. Uh, and what was thought of as to be fantasy, as so often happens in fiction, actually is becoming a reality. And there are lots of reports in the media how uh, the Chinese development of a hypersonic missile uh, yes. recently, the testing, successful testing of a hypersonic missile came as a huge shock to the Western and American intelligence community. Um, one of the problems, of course, in this world is that technology can enable states to take huge and often unexpected advances to leapfrog forward and in a wor- world where so much science goes on in our universities, so much intellectual property is difficult to, to defend in, in a digital age, well, adversaries and competitors can accept it, they can access it and, and then they can exploit it. So, um, yes, you feel we're, we're, we're moving through an inflection point of great upheaval and uncertainty.
1: Yes, clearly, some of my people in your home as well. I can hear the builders a <laughs> few several
0: floors below you. No, no, it's
1: fine. It's fine. Um, uh, Poland, of course. I mean, it's, in theory, is is its security is guaranteed well, guaranteed, but it's, it will be defended by by NATO. At least that's the plan. Ukraine. We don't have any sort of defence policies towards Ukraine as such, do we?
0: No, and not there not is straight, think, being an ally. No, and there is good reason for that. You know, on the one hand. Uh, clearly the majority, I think, of the Ukrainian population, uh, they want to be in an independent nation state that is a democracy. And I think most people, certainly most of the people I know in Ukraine, um, would like to become members of the European Union and NATO to bring along with it the sort of rule of law, civility, trust and predictability that those institutions represent. But on the other side, you know, I think there is an understanding in Washington, in London, in Paris, Bonn and elsewhere of Russian history. You know, let's not forget if you're sitting in Moscow, um, you know, Napoleon did get to the gates of, of Moscow, you know, and you know, the British uh, uh, meddled extensively in Russia after the, uh, the revolution of 1917. Let's not forget that Hitler um uh you know got very deeply into soviet territory and indeed destroyed something the order i think of seventy thousand villages as well as many many millions of russians and other ethnic groups within the former soviet union so the russians you know have a certain view and for them for their security they see ukraine i think as very much within their sphere of influence and as a sort of buffer zone if you could imagine it like this imagine that um, uh, that some sort of perceived foe of the United States was getting heavily involved uh, in Mexico or on the southern border of the United States. Well, you can imagine the US and, and people in the capital becoming concerned about that. Or imagine if lots of um, uh, way, different ways of governance that we don't like or admire, started to encroach significantly on Northwestern Europe, even in the Channel Islands. And and I think this is the way the Russians view it. But of course, the the real conundrum is surely in the 21st century, uh, people in an independent country such as Ukraine should ultimately have the right to choose the institutions that they're members of internationally and the sort of governance that they want to embrace. And if they want to embrace democracy and they want to embrace NATO or the European Union, shouldn't they have the rights? Do we have to go on thinking um, uh, in terms of spheres of influence? That's the tension, I think. That's the debate.
1: Um, The dependence upon um, Russian gas, of course, is complicating Everything and um, the new pipeline, which will bypass Ukraine, is not very helpful to them at all. It would reduce their income, but also that you know um, um, uh, makes the Ukraine perhaps less important then for 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 Europe. But for Germany, presumably, they say they, after the the um, extraordinary um, sort of Japanese tsunami and the problems with the uh, with nuclear power, down there was Germany's abandonment of nuclear power, has obviously causing it problems isn't it because it becomes ever more dependent upon Russian Russian gas whereas France for instance is still I think 75% of its um, power generation comes from nuclear power.
0: You're absolutely right Um, there are many people many world leaders who I think are privately if not overtly critical of Angela Merkel's knee-jerk reaction to close down uh, their nuclear energy program. Um, Yes France uh, uh, you know has an enormous uh, program and um the united kingdom uh, looks as if it wants to not only carry on with the new generation of major nuclear power stations for example uh hinkley point in somerset but it also uh is partnering with major engineering companies such as rolls-royce who've just won i think a 100 million pounds investment from qatar to um to to develop and and to 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 deliver a new generation of mini nuclear power stations. You you know, uh, there are now apps available online. You can actually download extraordinary apps that will give you a fairly good understanding of how the United Kingdom is being powered at any moment. And I noticed this morning, uh, when the sun was shining more than it is now, that about 13 or 14% of our power came from solar. Um, And I think it was a similar amount coming from wind. Um, Of course, in a very sunny day, uh, the mm-hmm. solar power goes up if there's but if you know but it means that you know although we have a diverse energy economy in, ever increasingly so if if the weather is against you you can have pinch points and problems and so uh whilst i applaud the british government's drive to diversity i do think that new generation of nuclear power stations are important and this is not just for environmental reasons it's precisely the point about germany germany has become uh you know uh although it does have some wind and and some and and some solar um by stripping out nuclear they have in a potentially very dangerous way become beholden um not only to the older technologies of coal and gas but they could become you know beholden to ever more to the russians rather like countries like slovakia the czech republic or hungary have been for a long time
1: presumably if putin actually does invade it would actually i mean most western nations would then probably regard them as being beyond the pale and would try and find alternative sources of gas would think i mean it could be a question of cutting off your nose to spite your face
0: well i mean this is the problem isn't it because um you'd have thought that if we were going to have that reaction we would have had it with the crimea we'd have had it with hmm. the donbass we would have had it with all kinds of russian attempts not, you know, in recent years, with um, North Moldova. Um, You know, I mean, it's not, you know, you'd have had it with the Skripals and the attack on Salisbury. Um, You know, there are many examples. And of course, we saw this, didn't we, in the 1930s? We saw the policy of appeasement, which is Mm. somewhere between uh, don't try to exacerbate, don't try to be undiplomatic, you know, don't try to, to raise the costs and the tensions, Let's pour oil in the waters and try and smooth things over. Um, I think because of the way Russia is governed at the moment and because of Putin's track record and because of the fact that he really wants to, as a kind of puppet master, use all the levers at his disposal, um, uh, probably playing to his own audience at home, trying to project power on in the international stage and all that, you know, but not playing by the international rules of the game and not playing fairly um no i think he has to be called out and i i have to say i'm very much against Nord stream too i think it's a huge mistake uh, that germany has even seen this as an option yes interesting michael
1: fallon wrote just this week former defense secretary at the time of the coalition that um, you know he was arguing for supplying military equipment to ukraine but um his cabinet colleagues, felt they didn't want to provoke the Russians. So we'll have to see how that works out. Tim, uh, let us change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. Uh, you're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. we I in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, our, our second topic, please.
0: Well, I don't think we can avoid the issue or the return of the issue of sleaze in British politics. Um, this was an issue, I mean, it bobs up and down over the years. Um, it's high on the agenda at the moment. It's really damaging Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, in the <laughs> opinion polls. Um, we saw a sort of um, uh, an aspect of Sleaze, didn't we, five or ten years ago when uh, when we saw all the stories, particularly sparked by uh, Guido Forks concerning uh, MP's expenses. That was a huge scandal. And then if we go back to um, the days of John Major, um, there seemed to be an awful lot of uh, problems with Sleaze, um, uh, ranging from sex scandals to... Brown envelopes, putatively stuffed with cash. Um, uh, in the old days, of course, when we were very young, Simon, um, um, it was always said that um, that if you were sort of from the political left, you tended actually to be involved in monetary scandals. But if you were sort of from the right, often they were sex scandals. Mm. Now it seems to me that um, that as we move into the twenty first century, um, all sides are at it and they're at <laughs> all of it. There's always yeah you know a, a bit of sex and 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 certainly there's lots of money and be that uh you know members of parliament right across the chamber who have got uh, consultancy jobs or 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 they're members of various trades and professions they could be doctors they could be gps they could be nurses they could be lawyers whatever there there does seem to be an awful lot of um earning the salary and, and not in substantial salaries You a know, lot most backbench MPs and something went into the 80,000 yes. year uh, for their jobs. But lots of them do seem to have um, sort of second roles. Lots of them are also supported by trade unions or supported by trade unions. And, and I'm sure that with the support and sponsorship they get, there are all kinds of agendas they follow there. So I think this does go right across, although it is very much damaging the Prime Minister and the Tories at the moment. But what's at the root of this I'm um, going back all uh, over the years. What's at the root of this is this very peculiar way that in this country we view poli- poli- politics and politicians. On the one hand, um, we want politicians, particularly when they're elected representatives like MPs, to be sort of full-time serving us not just representing mm. us not just being a delegate or representative in parliament but almost there is someone who we can call on if for example the local council fail you know um yes. they're almost sort of high-end social workers ultimately um and and, and for that you know so we're, we're happy to pay our taxes and we're happy for them to have the salaries that they do on the other hand we're also rather wary aren't we of people who've I don't know, gone to school or college or university, then joined, I don't know, a local council or a county council and who climbed the greasy pole of politics into the House of Commons and then set off again to be a junior minister, but who have um, some kind of second career and an outside interest or, or, or income. Mm-hmm. And the tension on all of this, and this goes back not just decades, it goes, you know, back into the 19th and the, in the 18th century and beyond. It is the tension between do we want our politicians to be full-time representatives who are um, professional politicians, so full-time and professional, or do we want them also to be amateurs, to be what I call sort of potted shed Yes. You know, do we want them to actually have an outside interest and do we want the diversity of outside interests uh, to inform the House of Commons? So you might have someone, I think there's someone on the labour benches who's a part-time nurse and they do two eight-hour stints a week. And there are other people who are GPs or lawyers, there are company directors, there's people with a lot of expertise. If you professionalise your politicians, you would potentially cut them off from those sorts of institutions or roles. And so that's the tension. And it seems to me we haven't answered it for 300 years. And with that in mind, I'm not brilliantly confident that the current bunch we have or the current government are gonna be able to square the circle.
1: Well, we only started paying our members of parliament, didn't we, when in the early 20th century because Labour members needed it in order to be able to actually serve their constituents. And I would imagine most people think that the primary role of an MP should be to look after their constituents. But you often find that um, that is not the case and it's not always because they have second jobs either. But I'm intrigued because of course, the weird thing about being an MP is you can be there one day and gone the next. I mean, if you, if you have only been a career politician, what on earth happens if your constituents decide to get rid of you? If you've had another career beforehand, another job, then theoretically you can go back to that afterwards.
0: But you know, after election night, you could just be out of a job. Absolutely. And, you know, see, y- 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 there is this question, do you want them to be narrow and climbing the greasy mm. pole, but with the profound risk that their careers could end very rapidly, and and then what happens to these people? Um, uh, and that might, by the way, have the unintended consequence, uh, you know, of excluding an awful lot of people who would otherwise be very useful and very talented, yes. and very capable at entering politics. You know, or or do you do the reverse? And for me, this is a conundrum because it's actually rooted over and above the philosophical tension between the amateur and and the professional. Um, it's actually rooted in the conundrums of the human condition. Um, you know, it, it's a very profound thing about what we are um, mm-hmm. as as human beings. Well, um, we need. Meet... What... Sorry, Tim. No, no, no. You you go for it. Well, I was just going to say we we do surely
1: we need our politicians to have experience of the outside world. If they've only ever, you know, been a politician, if they've been a career politician, shinning their way out that that greasy pole, surely they are less useful in a sense in representing the the electorate than if they've been a lawyer or a doctor or a, a nurse or a teacher or whatever before and had experience of actually well, what most of us have to go through in living our daily lives
0: and you're absolutely right and there's that's you know there's there's a great argument for what you've just said the counter that of course is the danger is that there are all kinds of professions and trades um or or forms of portfolio work mm. that could then invite in um all kinds of dubious influence money um causes um biases and that you know often are not democratic but they um, they help to raise the profile of minority groups. I don't. I'm not talking about, you know, gender politics, overall, But I mean really small niche minority interests, mm. um, and overinflate their importance or status. Uh, you know, almost akin to a form of asymmetric warfare, if you will. If you've got a, you know, a two or three people who are part of a cause, but they happen to be MPs, well, they can have a lot of clout mm. in media, in debate and 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 a disproportionate you know pulling on the tiller and, and directing the boat so um i don't think this is going to be easily sorted out and just as an awful lot of Tory mps who are no doubt involved involved in the professions particularly law accountancy you know, company directors there are an awful lot of people on the left who are doing important and very well-funded things with the trade union movement um i I can see this one running and running. And as it's done in the past, I can see it running its course. Um, Yes, there'll be some incremental changes, but will we as electors feel that things are fundamentally clean and as they should be? No, I think this is a very difficult, very messy, very human story. OK, Tim, um, that's a good moment for us to... Take a
1: brief pause and we'll turn to our third topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University in London. Tim, what's our final topic, please?
0: Um, I've been enthralled on watching... uh, Ed Balls, the former Labour MP and Cabinet Minister and advisor to Labour Chancellor Gordon Brown, watching Ed's series um, Inside the Care Crisis, which uh, has been uh, on the BBC uh, television recently. And I've been enthralled by it because um, he has really brought some home truths to light. Um, Things that not only resonate with me because I am a part-time carer, um or have been up to recently two elderly parents and, and now one elderly parent but because he's cast a light on the scale of a problem which in this country we're often in denial of and one of the reasons we're in denial uh is because when we talk about people being unwell uh, or we talk about any form of health care we tend to talk about the NHS. And one of the really impressive things that Ed Balls has done is locate um, the NHS debate in the context of the broader picture of UK health and social care. You know, if the NHS has, for example, around 100,000 beds, you know, ICU, acute, surgical, you know, beds, well, there are about 400,000 beds in the UK's, health, uh, uh, social care sector. And that can range from people who are, I don't know, in the in long term care setting somewhere like uh, the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability, which is in Putney in London, which deals with often people who are in comas for a long term or have Huntington's disease. It can range to other units like uh, uh, the Children's Trust, used to be called Tabworth Court down in Surrey, which deals with children who have multi and profound um, uh, disabilities. Um, to people who are in more familiar, older people in more familiar residential or nursing homes, uh, nursing home settings. There are also, as he pointed out, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are receiving care in their own homes, often uh, by loved ones. Um, And, you know, we're we're dealing with a sector here that in the round, if you include the care home setting and the domiciliary setting, you're dealing with well over a million people. And I just wish that, for example, during the pandemic, and this is something Ed Balls was really upfront about, this is something he said, and I agree with him to Hilt, that when people were clapping for the NHS, um, I wish we were clapping more than just for the NHS and the hundred thousand beds that the that that service has. I wish we were clapping for the UK's health and social care sector, be it the NHS, be it for profit, be it not for profit, be it the medical military sector, which does so much, not only for our own forces, but is again currently stepping up with additional ambulance support. You know, To make our health and social care work in this country, um, it is not any one component. There are huge charities out, like, out there like the British Heart Foundation or Alzheimer's UK or Parkinson's, you know, or or the Salvation Army or Methodist care homes or Jewish care, you name it. It's it's an extraordinary and rich diversity. It's a huge tapestry. The the National Union of Mine Workers Convalescent Homes, you know, people forget that 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 union has long had its own convalescent homes. And for me, um, they all do an extraordinary uh, job. And I just wish we raised our gaze more and thought about those elements. And he makes the key point um, that because we don't often think of them, uh, often people are left in neglect. People, particularly people who don't have uh, families, you know, they're isolated. This is not a well-resourced area. Uh, it's a real struggle to get more money to get to the hands of social services directors and, and for things to be funded. Um, it is a bit of a Cinderella service and it's overlooked and it's forgotten. Yes. Well, I really salute Ed Balls for what he's done. Yes.
1: Under even greater pressure, of course, in the pandemic when the NHS was sort of basically pushing people out into the care sector, which was less well-prepared uh, and able to defend its, itself and its patients. Um, I mean, in theory, of course, they the, the, sort of, proposed rise in national insurance is supposed to somehow magically solve all the problems in the social care sector I, I imagine from what you've been saying you don't necessarily think that's going to
0: work well the first thing is I have no um, way of knowing if the additional uh, level of 1.25 percent of, of for national insurance I have no idea if that money is actually going to come forward mm. because we have no way of knowing the extent to which we're at the UK's peak of Laffer Curve, and that if you add a tax, there's no there's no absolute recipe that says you're going to get more money in. Yep. You may go yep. over the top of the Laffer Curve and get less money in. Secondly, if we do get the extra 12.5 billion a year that the government want to derive from this extra tax, will that actually get through to frontline people who, to receive care and treatment? And now the data is in from, you know, from 2002 to... To 2020 of all the extra money that the the, for example, Tony Blair uh put into the NHS. Very, very little of that, and I mean a tiny percentage, actually ever got through to frontline patient care. Most of it was eaten up with extra administration or went off to various interest groups, um, you know, who may, may have negotiated pay increases and all Um, you know, and and that's not me saying that doctors and nurses really were. Well- or anyone shouldn't have more pay. But let's not assume that this extra money will will actually get through to people in the next two or three years in the NHS. Um, And then beyond that, the idea that somehow this money is going to be, I know, tapered away from the NHS to actually get into social care. Well, you know, we will see if any of this happens. It is possible, just to tie some of this package together today, it is possible that with the the extraordinary hike in energy prices that we're seeing from for a whole range of reasons uh, around the world at the moment. It is possible, you know, it's very rare you see these kind of energy increases around the world where you don't have some kind of recession that follows. Mm. Um, and do I really believe Rishi Sunak's view that the British economy is gonna grow in the way he thinks it's gonna grow over the next two or three years? I'm not sure I believe those statistics. Will this tax base increase in the way that the government wants? I don't know. If it does, will any of that money get through to patients? And then after it, people in social care? I don't know. That's not I'm not, not sure he
1: believes. Things. I'm not sure if he believes it. Well, no, he's
0: an overt sceptic. I'm just an <laughs>
1: uh, Interesting, Tim. Most weeks you say you're an external optimist. You don't seem quite as optimistic today. But I've been delighted to talk to you. Um, uh, my conversation has been with Tim Evans. He's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. And Tim will be back with more to discuss with me in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.